Hey, Deep State Radio listeners. Today, we're bringing you an episode from a show that my uh, friends over at the Eurasia Group Foundation produced called None of the Above. What you're about to hear is a conversation between None of the Above host Mark Hanna and America's highest-ranking military officer, General Mark Milley. They begin to answer some of the tough questions we've all been wondering about, including how does the war in Ukraine end? If you listen to this podcast or you listen to other podcasts that they've produced, you'll hear from a wide range of guests, including Mexican actor Diego Luna, on the media's Brooke Gladstone, or even our very own Rosa Brooks. If you're interested in this kind of thing, listen to this podcast. And if you like this episode, go to None of the Above and subscribe to it in all the ways that you can subscribe to a podcast. None of the Above is a production of the Eurasia Group Foundation which is a nonprofit founded by Ian Bremmer and dedicated to making geopolitics accessible to everyone. At some point, people will figure out that uh, the cost of continuing to execute this war through military means Mm -hmm. is extraordinarily challenging. It doesn't mean it can't be done. And I applaud the Ukrainian will and their courage and their resilience. Uh, But there's also the practical matter of being able to physically kick out every single Russian out of all of Ukraine. That's really hard to do militarily. Welcome to None of the Above, a podcast of the Eurasia Group Foundation. My name is Mark Hanna. You're about to hear a conversation about the future of conflict. How does the war in Ukraine end? How will the United States and China's rivalry play out? And what military technology will shape these future conflicts? Now, no one can fully predict the answers to these questions, but I recently had the opportunity to sit down with one of the best-positioned people to try, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. Now, you might think because General Milley is the President's top military advisor and the highest-ranking military official in the country that he's all business. But as fellow Massachusetts natives, there were a few other things we had to take care of up front. Well, the fact that you're from the Cape Cod area is, uh, is very impressive, and you already have a leg up on every other interviewer. Fantastic. Thank you. We well, could have this entire interview about, about Cape Boston Cod? Red Sox and Cape Cod. Can we talk that. about the Shockey Waters? Yeah, we can do all that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, are great white sharks a national security threat in your mind? Great white sharks are there. Yes. Okay. I, I know they're there. Okay. And they're there in, in large numbers, okay. and we're tracking them very, very frequently. Here at the Pentagon. And absolutely, all the time. Fantastic. That's right. Did I ever tell you? Here, I'll tell you a story. Okay. So this is uh, the late 70s. It was right after Jaws came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, my buddy and I, uh, he had one of these little uh, sailboats, just big enough for two guys. Uh, so we went sailing off Cape Cod, and the mast broke. And we're quite a ways off. So we had to swim that ashore. So one of us would take the line, would jump in the water. The other guy would stay on the boat, look for sharks. And of course, uh, the guy on the, on the boat would rotate, and the guy on the boat would start doing the Jaws song every time you're in the wire. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Nice. It was, it was amazing. It, was, yeah, it took forever to do it. And we had no fins. I'm, proud that's I'm just thankful that there were no great whites in those days. Yes. Not as many. Yeah, I think your, one of your assistants mentioned that they haven't attacked any seals, and I had to clarify that that was a Navy, Navy seal. Navy seals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, I'm attacking a lot of seals. Um, okay, let's turn uh, to something serious, which is the war in Ukraine. Yes. We just uh, <clears throat> marked... The one year okay, wait. Before we dive into our conversation about the war in Ukraine and other conflicts currently occupying America's attention, I want to first draw our attention to a conflict that occupied it not that long ago, the Iraq War. 
This week marks the 20th anniversary of America's invasion of Iraq. And I wanted to get Chairman Milley's reflection on that. Do you have any kind of message to veterans who might be listening, uh, either about their service, or do you have a kind of uh, key lesson you take away from America's experience of the war in Iraq? You served there. What's your takeaway from, from that? Look, I, I spent a considerable amount of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, lost a lot of soldiers in both. Uh, am deeply invested uh, at the emotional level and the, the psychological level as well as the professional level. Uh, and in neither case have outcomes been exactly uh, what we would have preferred. Uh, but I can tell you that every soldier, sailor, airman, marine uh, that served in those conflicts uh, did extraordinarily well. Uh, and they, they fought with uh, tremendous uh, skill uh, and, and they, uh, they, they fought for uh, the right reasons. Uh, which was to protect the United States of America. Now, the second thing we're, you know, going into Iraq has to do with is uh, to uh, free the Iraqi people of the, the yoke of tyranny and dictatorship that Saddam Hussein was. And I don't think a lot of people quite fully understand, unless you were in Iraq or you have relations with the Iraqi people, um, how brutal that dictatorship was. Uh, Saddam Hussein was vicious, uh, and what he was doing to the Iraqi people was uh, incredible. Now that's not, you know, bad things happen all over the world. Uh, that in and of itself is not justification for a, uh, uh, an invasion of the sort that we did. Uh, it has to be defensive in nature. And, and we thought at the time and, 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 uh, that, that we were defending ourselves. Though there was plenty of evidence that Saddam Hussein led a brutal and oppressive regime, no evidence ever emerged that he in fact possessed weapons of mass destruction. This fact allows many to chalk up the failure in Iraq to faulty intelligence, and the reckoning that's happening on the anniversary this week, to the extent there is one, fails to consider whether the possession of those weapons would have made the war more strategically sound, or less, more just, or not. America's war in Iraq, and the muddied reasoning behind it, has raised enduring questions about America's involvement and motivations in all kinds of international conflicts, Ukraine included. That's why we sat down with General Milley to get his take on America's interests in defending Ukraine against Russia, a conflict which, with no end in sight, risks becoming yet another forever war. So I asked Chairman Milley what America's main goal is for its support, its ongoing support, and its generous support for Ukraine. The fundamental purpose, the interest uh, of the United States, the reason why, if you will, has to do with uh, the rules-based international order that was put in place uh, at the end of uh, World War II in order to prevent great power war. And uh, rule number one, if you will, was that uh, you can't conduct wars of aggression uh, and that large powers uh, cannot uh, attack smaller powers without some sort of uh, justification that justifies the defense of themselves. Um, so wars of aggression are definitely uh, not, uh, you know, they're opposed by this rules-based order. So what Putin has done <clears throat> is he's done a frontal assault on that rules-based order uh, by conducting a very large, very coordinated uh, attack on a much smaller country, a country that presented no material or military threat uh, to Russia. Uh, and Ukraine was never going to invade Russia. Ukraine wasn't going to attack Russia. Uh, and, and yet Russia went ahead and, uh, without provocation, conducted a very significant war of aggression. And that Russian motivation matters, too. My analysis says, in Russia's case, 
their essential causes belli is laid out in an article, a 17-page article that was written by Putin in the summer of uh, 21. And in July of 21, he lays out his reasons or his justification. Uh, there are deep historical linkages, he argues, with uh, Ukraine and Russia. He argues that Ukraine is actually historically part of Russia, ancient Rus sort of thing. And he argues that when the wall came down, the uh, NATO boundary shifted from the inter-German border all the way to the east. So now that you have Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and other countries are members of NATO, and in their mind, in, in Putin's mind, in Russia's mind, Ukraine was attempting to become a member of NATO, uh, and he perceived that to be a threat. So fear, a pride and interest, or what Thucydides tells us, you know, are the fundamental causes of war, and I'd say that's still pretty much true after, you know, two and a half millennia of, of when he wrote it. So uh, in the case of Russia, uh, they don't have large oceans on either side of them. They don't have massive mountain ranges. So there's not obvious physical barriers to invasion from the West. So fear plays a fundamental role, I think, to explain, not excuse, but explain uh, Russia's actions. And then there's obviously interest uh, with not only national security interests, but there's financial interest, et cetera, oil and gas and so on. And then pride, uh, because when the wall came down, the Soviet Union was uh, a great power. And in Putin's mind, he was Lieutenant Colonel Putin at the time, KGB officer in, in East Germany, watches the wall come down. Right. And that ripped apart uh, at Russian pride. And he says that that was the worst event that occurs in the last century. So those three things, I think fear, interest, pride, help explain. And again, they don't excuse. Uh, right. This is a war of aggression. It's Putin's war. It's a war of choice. Right. Uh, but I think it does help explain why they're doing what they're doing. It's a complicated thing, making sense of America's legacy in Iraq while contending with America's current role in Ukraine and the prospect of a Cold War or potentially a hot conflict with China down the road. Now, this week in particular leaves me wondering what the United States has learned, what it's gained, and what it's forgotten. One thing seems clear, at least with America's current response to the war in Ukraine, and that is... After decades of unsuccessful wars, the Biden administration seems more attentive to the limits of America's military might, and more cautious about the use of force. But that could change as these conflicts evolve. General Milley has his own ideas on what it would take to cross that threshold into putting U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine, but also what it would take to draw down this and other seemingly intractable conflicts. When you're in the seat and you're making decisions, life and death decisions. You've got to weigh all of the factors. Uh, and, and I would argue that that is exactly what happened, which was a very deliberative process. Uh, every single day you're constantly calculating things in order to determine uh, is it escalatory, is it not, is it prov uh, provocative or not, uh, what's going to be reaction, counteraction, and so on. Uh, there are no impulsive decisions in this business, and great powers don't bluff. Uh, so. Um, it's, it's a very, very deliberative process, a very mature process, and a very serious process because there's not only thousands but millions of lives at stake uh, when you're talking about countries that have, uh, you know, nuclear weapons that pose existential right. threat not only to uh, countries but to the humanity, actually. So, But uh, you said great powers don't bluff, and, and that's, that's interesting. They, they do posture, though, right? And when Russia's changing the status of its nuclear weapons or the United States is sending new service members over to Eastern Europe. Those uh, aren't bluffs. Though they're, they're, they're not bluffs. They're calculated acts of deterrence. That's right. And, but they are presumably people in this building hope that those service members don't end up 
being the tripwire that starts World War III, right? Of course, and that's the reason they, that they went, because we have a commitment under uh, NATO Article 5, which is a Senate-ratified treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one for all, all for one sort of thing, to uh, defend uh, the signatories of the treaty. Very early on, decisions were made to go ahead and deploy additional U.S. forces, ground forces, to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Slovakia, uh, Romania, etc. And essentially every country that bordered uh, Ukraine or Russia uh, got additional uh, U.S. military forces. So if you go back to, say, September time frame, we had about uh, 60 to 70,000 troops of different kinds uh, in Europe, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, Marines, etc. Uh, but we quickly ramped that up through the fall and into the January-February time frame to 100, 110,000 troops. Uh, we increased the number of ships, the number of subs, number of fighter squadrons, uh, number of brigades, etc. We did that for a reason, to send a clear, unambiguous message to Russia uh, that uh, any violation of NATO Article 5 was going to end up in a very, very serious, potentially military response. President Biden said it, I don't know how many times, but he said it a lot, uh, that we, we, the United States, would defend every inch of NATO territory, and he was very serious about it. Yeah. Uh, so we deployed capabilities in order to deter right. any uh, Russian advances into any NATO Article 5 country. Do you think it was a strategic mistake to expand NATO to the extent that the United States did. I mean, Henry Kissinger, George Kennan, Gorbachev, a lot of people cautioned against that. No, I don't think it was a strategic mistake. I think, first, first of all, NATO's an alliance where uh, any nation state ha has uh, the opportunity or the right to apply for membership if they meet certain standards. Uh, that's the first point. Secondly, I think uh, that Russia has proven themselves uh, to be a continuously aggressive state against neighboring uh, countries. Uh, witness the war uh, against G Georgia. Uh, look at what they're doing in Moldova. Look at uh, uh, the attack in 2014 on, uh, in, in Crimea. Look at, real, look at real, Donbass and why, so on. Why so, aren't we supporting Georgia more? I mean, you mentioned the rules-based international order, and, yeah. but there are countries that have violated other countries' sovereignty. Um, that we don't necessarily spring into action. Um, we, by we, I mean the West, right? Mm. Um, why is Ukraine and this invasion different than the invasion of Crimea in 2014 or Georgia? I think each case gets evaluated on its own merits, right? And uh, the size, scale, and scope uh, of this invasion was unlike any other uh, invasion that we've seen. This is the largest land war in Europe since the end of World War II in 1945. Mm -hmm. uh, this involved several hundred thousand Russian troops, several field armies, combined arms armies, uh, it involved uh, significant portions of their air force. It involved their navy. This was a very significant invasion. Mm -hmm. The size and scale and scope of this is so blatant and mm -hmm. so aggressive, it required a different size, scale, scope of response. And that's, that's what we did. Are we fighting a proxy war? I know if you had asked analysts you know, sure. yeah. nine months ago, it would be no, we're supporting a democratic, free, and, and sovereign Ukraine. But I, I've seen a lot of mainstream analysis shift its tune to say this is essentially a, a proxy war. What's your take? I don't think it is. Um, I don't think that we are, you know, using Ukraine in order to fight Russia. Uh, my view is, is this is the United States uh, and at least 50 or 60 other countries uh, that are supporting a country uh, 
that was a victim of a significant military attack. And all we're doing is giving them the means uh, in order to defend themselves against external attack. We are not uh, supporting uh, an offensive attack against Russia into Russian territory. This is entirely defensive in nature, which is one of the fundamental principles of the Augustinian theories of just war, which is uh, to fight a defensive war. And this is a war between Ukraine and Russia. It is not a war between NATO and Russia. It's not a war between the United States and Russia. And now, if the war expands into NATO Article 5 territory based on Russian aggression, then you're in a different place. But right now, this is clearly a war between Ukraine and Russia. We are helping Ukraine defend themselves. And fight a just war. And but fight the, a just war of defense. The, and the, but the justness <clears throat> of the war, mm -hmm. though an important consideration for American policymakers, doesn't necessarily make Ukraine's probability of victory go up. Right, simply because it's no. just or appropriate no, for it right. to respond. That's right. You were one of the first people to say this war isn't going to end in a kind of unconditional surrender, that there's going to be a negotiated settlement here. What can the United States do to accelerate that diplomatic agreement that ends this war? You know, all, all wars, as Clausewitz tells us, all wars are politics. Uh, uh, by the use of organized violence to, in order to impose your political will on, on your opponent. So in Russia's case, uh, they decided to conduct a very broad, uh, very significant uh, invasion of Ukraine in order to uh, topple the Zelensky government, uh, in order to capture at least all of eastern Ukraine, east of the Dnieper River, and arguably further west, uh, all the way out to the uh, Carpathian Mountains. Um, they failed in that. They failed strategically to achieve their political objectives through military means. So it's my estimate uh, that they probably will not be able to achieve their political objectives, right. it's very unlikely, through military means, if their political objectives are to secure and to seize all of Ukraine or even you know, huge chunks of it. I think that uh, it'd be very, very uh, unlikely that they're going to be able to do that. On the other side, on the Ukrainian side, <clears throat> their political objectives totally justified uh, totally, uh, you know, in accordance with just war sort of theories. Um, it's a war of defense, and their their uh, political objectives are to liberate all of Ukraine, every inch of Ukraine, uh, and get every Russian soldier out of Ukraine, out of every inch of Russian or Ukrainian a, territory. And so, is that achievable? Well, so that's the question. So is that achievable through military means? Right. Uh, and I would say. Uh, this year being the remainder of this year, um, I think that'll be a very difficult task. It's not impossible, um, but it's extremely difficult. And in the wor world of probabilities, I don't think it's likely. Uh, it could happen, but I don't think it's likely to happen. So therefore, you've got a state uh, of uh, nature where neither side probably can achieve their political objectives through military means. Uh, and, and that exist that that state of nature will exist for some period of time you'll you'll see offensive actions by one side or the other right uh, you'll probably see some significant advances by uh, hopefully knock on wood by by the ukrainians to liberate uh, ukraine but the but entire it's frozen, country it's a frozen conflict is this i wouldn't say frozen okay uh, i would say that it is um it is unlikely to achieve their political objectives through Mil military means 
this year. Right. Uh, so and even Zelensky has it's been reported <clears throat> that he said, you know, two to three years is the amount of time we sure. need. And, and if you're looking at trench warfare, that's that's well, uh, meat grinders. Three years so, that, that's time. a lot. That's, that's a right. lot of that's a lot and, of bodies, and, and that's a lot of cost. Right. That's a lot of cost of rebuilding as well. Right. Um, so after that time. So the question, though, yeah. is there have been peace plans proposed by Italy. Uh, different countries have mm-hmm. tried to become mediators. Turkey, yeah. uh, sort of good faith negoti- uh, sort of mediators. China recently floated a peace plan. Should the United States take seriously or welcome any country that's going to try to bring an end to this war? Zelensky said he was awaiting details on the China plan, but he didn't dismiss it out of hand. Is there is there a way that we should be sort of advocating d- diplomatic negotiations, no matter who is, is uh, involved in those? Well, I think that, first of all, uh, you asked how this ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think given that neither side is likely to achieve their complete political objectives uh, through military means, and that's just a military assessment, mm-hmm. um, then it probably will end somewhere, somehow, at a negotiating table. Uh, every leader of Europe has said that. President Biden has said that. Uh, Zelensky himself has said that. Uh, the problem is, is neither side right now is willing to move to a negotiating table uh, to start discussing what could be the terms uh, at, at the end of the day. So President Zelensky has a set of 10-point uh, 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 peace plan, and mm-hmm. he has laid out his conditions. Uh, Putin, uh, President Putin has laid out his conditions. The Chinese have come in from the sidelines and said, here's a 12-point peace plan. Uh, so there's, there's others. You mentioned Turkey and others. I don't know what the answer is going to be. I'm not a diplomat. I'm a soldier. Uh, but I believe that the diplomats of the world, whomever they are, uh, will so- somehow figure out, uh, my guess is at, at some point in the future, maybe this summer, maybe next winter, who knows, I don't know when, uh, but at some point people will figure out that uh, the cost of continuing to execute this war through military means mm. um, is extraordinarily challenging. It doesn't mean it can't be done, and I applaud the Ukrainian will and their courage and their resilience, uh, but there's also the practical matter of being able to physically kick out every single Russian out of all of Ukraine. That's really hard to do militarily, uh, and it's an enormous cost in blood and treasure. So uh, I think that somewhere, somehow, someone's going to figure out how to get to a negotiating table and that's where this thing will get settled out eventually. It was reported by The Economist, I think, that Ukraine's firing more shells in a month than we can produce or that we've been producing in a year. Is there a limit to what, just from a purely tactical standpoint, the United States is able to supply Ukraine with? Well, remember, the United States is not doing this alone. Uh, right. There's 50 or 60 countries that are also contributing significantly to this effort. Uh, in terms of materiel, uh, whether it's ammunition or weapons or tanks or infantry fighting vehicles, uh, or even non-lethal uh, capabilities. There's also a significant amount of financial aid that's going to Ukraine. Because remember, Ukraine has suffered tremendously. Uh, about a third of their economic output has been uh, destroyed. Their energy output, about a third of that's down. About 25% of their agriculture is no longer, the, the land is no longer uh, farmable. Uh, and, and then they've suffered, I think it's about 40,000 plus uh, civilian killed. Uh, and they, and that's out of a population of, of uh, 40 million. So, so what uh, you're saying essentially is given their sacrifice, it's a huge some Abrams, Abrams tanks and, and, and shells are not necessarily 
we shouldn't be too concerned about that? Or no, what I'm saying is is that the 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 sacrifice that the Ukrainian people have put into this thing is enormous, uh, and the ability of the West to continue to support them, I think, uh, is it's not not unending in the theoretical sense, but I think that the words of President Biden and others are are valid, which is. Uh, we will support Ukraine uh, for as long as it takes, with as much as it takes. Uh, and the United States, along with our allies, have the capability to do that for uh, a very long period of time. You, you said about our own stocks. Mm. We monitor that very, very closely. And we, the U.S. military, um, have enormous amounts of capabilities. We are not putting ourselves, the United States National Defense, at risk with the supplies that we're giving. Uh, to the Ukrainians. Uh, sometime down in the future, that might not be the case, but right now we're, we're in good shape and we'll be able to sustain Ukraine for a considerable length of time. Um, so uh, it comes down to a, a, a matter of, uh, of political will yeah. uh, as opposed to the material assistance. I want to get one question in here sure. about China. It seems like American interests in Asia are manifold and, and there are a lot of different ways we relate with China, we're still there. They're still our number one trading partner. Do you do you see a conflict with China as historically inevitable? And do you worry that by talking about sort of a new Cold War, that we're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy where our posture toward China and theirs toward us is is adversarial rather than potentially competitive or cooperative? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first, I think China is the uh, the most significant geopolitical threat or adversary that the United States is facing. Uh, at least between now and mid-century and probably for the rest of the century. If you were a historian uh, in, the, in the year, you know, 21-23, and you were looking back on this century, uh, the main geopolitical story of the century is going to be the relationship between the United States and China. The, the rise of China is the most historic uh, geopolitical rise of a nation-state since the rise of the United States, really. Um, and it is enormous. What, what, what they've done since 1979, since the uh, uh, reforms of Deng Xiaoping, is they have reformed their economy. They're no longer really a communist economy per se. They're really a capitalist society like, led by a communist government. Right. Uh, and, and they have developed an enormous amount of wealth. And in the wake of that wealth, they are clearly developing a very, very capable world-class military. And, and, and that truly implies uh, that there could be uh, armed conflict between uh, China and the United States uh, at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in uh, historical determinism. Uh, I think that armed conflict between the United States and China is possible, uh, and we need to prepare for that, and we need to deter it from ever happening. Do you think any, any gain China makes geopolitically in, in Asia, or even in Africa or South America, in the Global South, in the Belt and Road, like, do you think that, that is a net negative for the United States. In, in other words, is this a zero-sum competition where right. China's uh, increasing affluence and geopolitical muscle flexing is going to necessarily threaten American interests? I don't think uh, that every single move by adversarial countries are necessarily zero-sum, but a lot of them are. Uh, we are in a very tenuous position with, with, uh, with China in the years ahead, and it's going to take every amount of uh, energy, talent, skill on both sides to prevent armed conflict. Uh, remember that China is a great power. China is a large country, an enormous economy. Uh, we have huge trade interests with China, for better or worse. Uh, they've got a rapidly developing military. Um, I think that it's in our interest and really the global interest to make sure that war between the United States and China does not happen. Uh, and we do that by making sure that the United States military uh, remains the strongest, largest, most significant, most capable military 
uh, in history. And then in order to uh, deter an opponent from wars of aggression, you have to have that capability. They have to know you have the capability. And then they have to know that you have the will to use it. And if you have that will capability, then the probability of deterrence uh, is higher. It's still not guaranteed, but it's higher. I believe that war between the United States and China can be deterred, but it can only be deterred uh, if the United States military stays really strong uh, and stays well ahead of the Chinese. Your term expires here in the fall. What are the major challenges uh, facing the person who comes after you? We are uh, currently in the middle of a fundamental change in the character of war. The nature of war, as Clausewitz talks about the nature of war, uh, that is uh, war is politics, it involves fear and friction, it involves uh, uh, this relationship between the government, the army, and its people. Um, and, and there's certain aspects of it that are immutable as long as human beings are involved in the conduct of war. But that's the nature of war. The character of war is different. The character of war is the tactics, the techniques, the concepts, the organizations, the talent management, the weapons, the technologies. Uh, and character of war changes frequently. It changes every time you have a new weapon and, and so on. But fundamentally, it only changes once in a while. So today, we are undergoing the most significant and most fundamental uh, change in the character of war. Uh, and it's really this time being driven by technology. Uh, so for example, we know that uh, we can hit with great precision at very long range uh, with the advent of precision guided munitions. And they came on about 40 years ago. At the end of, end, end of Vietnam, uh, we started introducing precision-guided munitions, and they're, now they're prolific. Every military has those. Uh, then you also have the ability to sense the environment, to see uh, in ways that humans have never been able to sense an environment before. So your ability to see and your ability to hit with precision munitions is unlike anything humans have ever witnessed before. Then add in some other technologies, robotics, for example. Uh, we know that we use uh, unmanned aerial vessels. Uh, we also uh, are experimenting, and most militaries now, most of the advanced country militaries are experimenting with unmanned maritime vessels, uh, both surface and subsurface. Uh, we are looking at robotic tanks and, and, and ground vehicles. So five or 10, 15 years from now, you're gonna see significant portions uh, of armies and navies and air forces that will be robotic. Uh, and then you've got uh, a technology that is uh, being developed very, very rapidly mm -hmm. in the commercial sector and has military application is artificial intelligence. So decision making in war uh, is fundamental to outcomes. So the more uh, rapidly you are able to absorb rapid or, or large amounts of information and then determine that relative to your opponent, uh, then you're going to have a decisive advantage. So you want to be ahead of your opponent in terms of decision-making relative to your opponent's ability to act. Artificial intelligence can, it has the potential anyway, to allow you to do that, to absorb massive amounts of information about both your enemy and yourself. So Sun Tzu, see yourself, see the enemy win a thousand battles. So if you can see yourself and see the enemy, crunch all that information about how much fuel you have, how much casualties you have, what's the status of your forces, and you can do the same for the enemy, you're going to have a potentially decisive advantage. All of those technologies are converging all at the same time, and they're all coming to fruition here in the next 10 or 15 years. Uh, I appreciate it, General Milley. Thank you very much for making it. Okay, that. Mark, thank yeah. you. All right, go Sox. Yeah, go Sox, go Bruins too. Yeah, that's right, go Bruins. This week, we'll hear reports of Chinese President Xi Jinping's meeting with President Vladimir Putin in Moscow as China seeks to boost its diplomatic standing and promote its plan to end the war in Ukraine diplomatically. 
Whether it's China, the United States, Italy, Turkey, we may begin to be seeing, as General Milley puts it, the diplomats of the world, whomever they are, figuring out a way to end this war. I'm Mark Hanna, and this has been another episode of None of the Above, a podcast from the Eurasia Group Foundation. Special thanks, as always, go out to our None of the Above team. Thanks to our producer, Caroline Gray, our associate producer and editor, Sarah Leeson, and our sound engineer is Andrew Logan. If you enjoyed what you've heard, we'd appreciate you subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find podcasts. Do rate and review us. If there's a topic you want us to cover, send us an email at info at noneoftheabovepodcast.org. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe out there. See you next time.